0: hello and welcome to the tuesday march 22nd 2022 episode of the musical universe of professor hurst this is craig w hurst emeritus professor of music podcasting from my music bunker along with my faithful canine companion Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you What has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe i currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label recording artist or the estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings now with that out of the way welcome to my musical universe my guest today is jazz saxophonist and educator Tom Talich. Tom is almost too busy to say how busy he is. The calendar page on his website has the following message. I'm all over the map and haven't had time to keep this page up to date. Give me a shout to find out where I'm at. When it comes to the topic of musicians and the pandemic, The focus is often on the financial challenges that performers faced when there were few opportunities to perform. Truth is, live outings are only part of what keeps Talich so busy. He spends a majority of his time then as now giving music lessons. Lately, he is able to do some half of the lessons in person, but for more than a year, he has been teaching online. Talich saw an influx of older students who contacted him about looking to learn how to play an instrument. Before the pandemic, I had a few online students in Europe, but now all these students from across the country were coming in. Talich, a Cleveland native, has lived for four years in Hopewell Borough, New Jersey. He has 11 albums to his name, including Message, which he released on his own label in February of 2021. A multi-instrumentalist who plays clarinet and piano, Talich is best known for the saxophone. He first got into jazz because of his father, who grew up in Chicago and who attended the same high school as Benny Goodman, the legendary bandleader. He says he thinks of jazz music as a kind of Americana. I love those old show tunes or country tunes. I love listening to stuff that just has a strong melody and a strong harmony, he says. It doesn't matter what the music is. In jazz music, we tend to improvise, but it's all about the song. Those same feelings inform his compositions as well. I really feel like melody is important. Sometimes when you listen to stuff, it's less about the melody and more about the song being a vehicle for improvisation, he says. I feel like the structure and the melody is important. My process now is I sing into my phone, say like when I'm driving in the car, then I come home and I transcribe it. I found that all my best compositions are ones that I didn't labor over or think about. He is only half of the creative force in his family. Wife, Carrie, is also a performer. She was a principal dancer with the Martha Graham Dance Company for 10 years. The couple have even worked together as Talich often provides musical accompaniment for Carrie's Dance Company performances. Both are graduates of the University of Cincinnati. They have a daughter, Melissa, who is five. After finishing college in 1996, Talich moved to Philadelphia, where he worked at a music store and taught lessons here and there. In 1998, he moved to Trenton and got a job selling pianos while continuing to teach. In 1999, he started teaching at Mercer County Community College and the Westminster Conservatory. I realized that I like teaching, he says. It's been a great business, but more than anything, I really like working with students. Since 2005, he has worked with the Princeton Child Development Institute, teaching students who are on the autism spectrum. I have may, may have learned more than they have because there were times when I was so frustrated, you know, why can't they get it and they have challenges. But there was a time when I realized that the problem was not them. It was me. I needed to learn how to be more effective and more patient. I needed to use the motivational systems that they have in place. And honestly, I think that has helped me with all of my students. He teaches piano and woodwinds at the Princeton Junior School, as well as homeschooled students, whom he notes were less affected than most students by the pandemic. Talich also hosts the modern jazz radio show, the Mercer County Community College Station, WWFM Jazz On 2. The show is broadcast Thursdays from noon to one. In terms of performing, Talich and his fellow musicians did what they had to do to stay busy during the pandemic. Many of the jobs are in New York or Philadelphia. As far as COVID and its potential impact going forward, he's currently planning to do what he's doing through the fall and winter, but he knows that he can't count on things staying the same with the Delta variant of the coronavirus currently on the rise throughout New Jersey. I'm keeping my eye on it daily. If it continues to go in the wrong direction, I'll put everything back online until it's safer, he says. It is my pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, Tom Talich. Hello, Tom. Hey, Craig. Thanks Thanks for having me. me on today. You bet. It's really great to talk with you. Uh, I, you know, the first thing I'd like to know, I ask this of every musician because I'm, I'm, I'm curious. So as a saxophonist, who turned the light on for you? What turned you on to music?
1: You know, my dad, I would have to say my dad, my dad uh, uh, loved Benny Goodman. It, my my dad was born and raised in Chicago and went to Austin High, uh, in Chicago, mm-hmm. and um, there was uh, there were a lot of musicians who came out of Austin High and came out of the that part of town. And my dad loved Benny Goodman. And he loved that. All the uh, Gene Krupa didn't, as far as I know, did not go to Austin High, but he loved Gene Krupa and he loved. Uh, that trio uh, with uh, Teddy Wilson. And it's mm-hmm. just I mean, it's out of sight. And so my dad would play this whole big band music. And um, uh, so I'd have to say my dad, you know, he would say, hey, listen to this. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then uh, we had a really good uh, I grew up in Cleveland and we had a really good on the west side of Cleveland. We had a really good Music program in our public school system, and uh, mm-hmm. I had a I had a really good music teacher um, in middle school, mm-hmm. who who would really push the kids to practice, and he would pull us aside, and he would show us you know the blue scales and have us have us try to solo a little bit, and he really encouraged us. So, uh, and that guy's name was. Uh, Mr. Patak if I remember correctly and uh, I'm not sure if he's still with us anymore but you know the my early teachers and my dad so Mm -hmm. that's what I would
0: yeah yeah well it's it's very similar I I was the exact same way my father played a little bit of keyboard and and we had a uh, we started out we had an organ in the house and he would play that and I got interested in playing that and then uh he, uh, you know, of course, both my parents were of the age to be part of the big band era in terms of their listening and dancing pleasures. And, uh, and that's, that's interesting. You mentioned Austin High School in Chicago. I actually knew the man who was the band director at Austin High School. Now, I don't know exactly the years he was there, but I know he retired in 1948. And he was was originally director. He was director of bands at Nicholas Sen High School in Chicago all the way back into the 1920s.
1: Oh, man.
0: And when they used to have the National High School Band Competitions back in like the late 20s and the early 30s, uh, he was director at Sen, and then they were national champions like two years in a row. And there was that whole... And I used to go and take trumpet lessons with this guy when I was growing up in Boise, Idaho. And he would tell me about these bands. And he was, by then, he was in his 80s. And I would, uh, you know, kind of blow off the stories. And then when I was at the University of North Texas doing my graduate work and digging through the library, I found this doctoral dissertation. And there he was. And I just had a, wow. But anyway, yeah, he was at San and he was uh, later at Austin. And, uh, you know, and he had really some fantastic bands while he was there, but, uh, but, uh, that's an interesting kind of connection. Uh, but yeah. so was your turn on to play in uh, music uh, and you're getting turned on to jazz kind of simultaneous.
1: I think so. You know, I was always, uh, moved by music. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, <sighs> You know it's uh it was it in my early years it was a little bit easier for me to articulate uh, but i I think I think the way that I'd put it now is that I was moved by music and I would it made me dream you know and uh I love to listen to it and I love to watch old videos of it and you know someone gave me a a video of Ben Webster. I loved watching watching that and mm-hmm. um, watching Louis Armstrong. And, uh, you know, just, I was always moved by it. And uh, <laughs> I couldn't remember the stuff they taught me in school, but I could remember stuff about music.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, and, um, yeah,
1: Just all I wanted to do is listen to music. And um, I was always curious, how how do you get this going? You know, how do you mm-hmm you're we're reading this music on the page and band but i'm hearing other things happening and i liked other kind of music too i mean as a kid i loved jimi hendrix i loved mm-hmm. you know all that stuff and how i was i always wanted to know how it worked and uh, um, so i would say um uh, from uh i owe everything to the people who introduced me to um, new kinds of music and and who taught me how how to get it going. My early teachers and um, yeah. So,
0: mm-hmm. not sure. Okay. If that, I
1: sort of meandered there. I'm not sure if I answered. That's all question. right. Me-
0: meanderings allowed that's okay. okay. <laughs> Remember, we're just having a good conversation here. But let's, uh, let's talk about something sort of uh, more philosophical or more stylistically deep. You know, we know jazz comes in many different flavors, right. because there are older styles, there are newer styles there are, you know, that are still coexisting. Uh, and so what I'm always curious to ask someone who is a jazz musician is, uh, not so much the question, what is jazz? Because, of course, Louis Armstrong answered that so eloquently, if you have to ask, you'll never know. <laughs> but maybe the better question that I have, at least in my mind is, what is the essence of jazz across all of its various flavors? And how is jazz different from other styles of music?
1: That is a great question. And, uh First thing that I think of is that it's personal. Um, It's it's uh, when you listen to all the all of the famous jazz musicians, it was personal to each one of them. They all had their own voice. The second thing is that it's highly improvisational. Whether it's um, um, now very very traditional or highly experimental it's a it's it's typically there's some sort of improvisation in there whether it's the bass player walking the bass line or the piano player guitar player comping the chords um and it all fits together and uh in a polyphony you know mm-hmm. it, it all comes together whether whether it's free or whether we're playing a song form. Mm-hmm. um but it's very personal. It's and and people fight about it all day long. What is jazz? That's not jazz. Mm-hmm. You know, it's doesn't come from the great American songbook, doesn't swing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but would uh, Chick Korea's Return to Forever be considered jazz? Mm-hmm.
2: You no, know,
1: that's mm-hmm. so. Um, I mean, I've heard people say that you know, John Coltrane with his with his classic quartet with McCoy and Elvin. I don't know, man. That's just not. That's not the jazz that I know. That's mm-hmm. so, but it's personal and it's improvisational. Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, yeah, I think that's an excellent. I no, I, I don't think anyone's ever given me that point of view but i think that's an excellent one and just for the record i did see return to forever live in 1974 and oh. i would, and i would say yes they are jazz uh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh and the and roy airs opened for them oh, and with geez. his with his vibes all electrified and everything and it was oh. loud and it was and it was raucous at times but i'll tell you uh, left with goosebumps and and just uh you know, just fantastic, uh, feeling and just saw some awesome, awesome, uh, playing. I mean, not just Chick, but, uh, between Al Demiola and Stanley Clark going back and forth and the chops those guys, you know, have, it was just, just out of sight. So not to mention Lenny, yeah. Lenny White and his drumming. So, oh. um, you know, but I think, uh, I think that idea, that personal kind of, uh, label is, is, uh, Excellent. You know, I myself, you know, I, I play classical music, too, yeah. because I'm I'm a trumpet player. And I so I love playing, you know, on the legit side. But you make a really excellent point. I might be interpreting uh, Bach's music or Mozart's music or Telemann's music, but it's still their composition. Um, and I might have a personal spin, but that's not the same as if I'm playing a standard and then having the opportunity to uh, throw in a completely new, some new ideas that fit within that context. Yeah. Uh, and it makes it a very personal kind of a form of expression. And I think your, your label's a, an excellent one. But uh, I,
1: I think about Jimi Hendrix. That's mm-hmm. so improvisational. That's not jazz. That's a, it's considered rock. Um, right. I'm trying, but at the at the same time, I'm, uh, you know, at this point in my career, I'm trying to, uh, um, uh, not put labels on, on these different types mm-hmm. of music. You know, that these labels and these classifications and these rules are what, uh, really keep my mind closed to possibilities, mm-hmm. um. Yeah. I saw, uh, years ago, <laughs> I saw uh, Colonel Bruce Hampton and the Aquarium Rescue Unit. <laughs> okay. And, uh, yeah. You ever heard of that? Never. Yeah. Uh, rock and roll, you know, Southern rock, came out of the Almond <laughs> Brothers thing, and and the uh, guitar player, Jimmy Herring, who, who was unbelievable, he's just blazing, and I said, wow, man. I talked to him afterwards, wow, do you play jazz? And he said, no, nah, I don't play jazz. And um, mm-hmm. so he was, he was improvising the whole night. Mm-hmm. But, but it, it, and it was electric, like Return to Forever. Mm-hmm. So my point is that the jazz, where I'm going with this is that what we think of as jazz and that classification comes out of a tradition
0: yes okay and when
1: we think of fletcher henderson and we think of mm-hmm. Louis armstrong and mm-hmm. up into uh, duke and everything that came out of that comes out of this tradition and this language
2: mm-hmm. and
1: this vocabulary and um, at some point um even in in with the electric music in the 70s the chick and you know, There's a lot of that old old language that's coming through. Mm -hmm. So it it, uh that was all to say that I think that there's a tradition that is passed all the way through. There's a thread.
0: Okay. Well that whole idea No, I think that's an excellent answer because I think I think you know you're right. Uh we have to think in terms of the tradition for whence we learn. Now, like Hendrix, for example, you know, he was not a jazz musician, but I think he was very firmly rooted in the blues. Yeah. And, exactly. and there certainly is, you know, an, a tradition of improvisation in the blues. It's different than jazz improvisation. I interviewed a blues musician last summer who just recently passed away. His name was Harp Dog Brown. He was a, a blues harmonica player and singer. And he had an interesting time. He calls jazz educated blues. Right. (laughs) You know, (laughs) you know, and because there are a lot of similarities. Uh, Blues maybe uses a simpler chord structure, uh, but jazz musicians play the blues you know, yeah. and, and we love playing the blues. And, uh, but, uh, you know, and Hendrix certainly came out of, you know, the tr- tradition of blues and rhythm and blues is a, you know, a side man at stacks for a while and that sort of thing. But uh, I think, yeah, you, you really hit on, I think, an important uh, topic for my listeners to c- consider. And that is it is do you recognize your ancestry? I'm talking about your musical ancestry. Yeah. And are you an outgrowth of that particular ancestry or a different one? And what do you consider yourself? I think that's excellent. That also, you're gonna get a five, an extra $5 bonus in your Christmas Club account because that leads beautifully into my next question. <laughs> uh, in, that, in that, although jazz is not central to American popular music today, it still exists and it still lives. How and why has jazz sustained itself over the past century? And then coming directly to you, what is the major challenge of being a jazz artist in the 21st century?
1: Oh, wow. So the first question, how has it survived? yeah
0: because it's had its ups and downs and been declared dead i don't know how many times during the last hundred plus years right but it still lives it still exists it still thrives so how and why has it been able to sustain itself and then the second half of that question really is what is the major challenge of being a jazz artist in the 21st century well i was gonna
1: say you know it's survived because people listen but i'm not sure if that's That's true. Uh, Because I think uh, sometimes um, no one is in the clubs, Um, especially during the pandemic. You know, know, there were some clubs that were shut down. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, If people go to the clubs, if we didn't have such great club owners, you know, Spike Wilner over at Smalls and Gianni over at Birdland over there, or uh, uh, the folks over in Chicago, uh, you know, at Andes and Green Mill and all that, and clubs in your town. If those clubs weren't there, people wouldn't have a place to go, but if the clubs weren't there, people would still play. Mm-hmm. So I think, um, I think jazz. It has survived in part because people love to listen to it, and it has a vibe that people want. Um, it has a feeling, whether it was something that they grew up with, something that uh, you know they heard around the house, or they heard coming out of a window, walking down the street, or listened to it at a club, or or whatever. Um, so they seek it out and they listen to it. Uh, but also in part because the musicians are going to play no matter what, you know whether people are listening or not. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, I kept playing, so.
0: Yeah. Well, no, I, I'm right there with you because how many times have you been up on stage, and you've been playing for half a dozen people? Yeah, I mean, I've done that. You've probably done that, but we still played, yeah. and maybe maybe a, a number of the people in our audience were just other musicians who were friends of ours. I've had, and yeah, it's almost almost more fun when no
1: one's there because you can really stretch.
0: Yeah, so. yeah, you feel less pressured. But there's <laughs> something that that came out in a in a conversation I had with a um, another uh, jazz musician. Oh, let's see, it's probably been a month ago or so when we were talking. We talked about the concept of the hang. That right. a lot of times it's musicians. Who support other musicians? Yeah, because we love to hang with other people that listen to the same kind of music that we do, and we love to talk about it. We love to, um, you know, keep keep it going because we believe in it, and uh, it, that's maybe part of how it's self sustaining in 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 some ways. And then hopefully we bring a few of the. Uh, uh, let's see I don't know what to call them non-believers or uh, uh, musical muggles or whatever along with us uh, you know what I mean the non, non-jazz non people or people that aren't okay people who are not hip there we go that's what we'll call you're them. The, you're <laughs> the second person to say muggle this week
1: that's so funny I should go back to Harry <laughs> Potter read that yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's sometimes that's how I refer to musical muggles, <laughs> people who just aren't hip. But anyway, uh, but you know, but that helps kind of uh, help us sustain an art that we love, and yeah. uh, and would be adrift, bereft, uh, lost without it. At least I know I would be. Yeah, me too. And I, and I think a lot of us in that. But anyways, you know, yeah. when I taught jazz history an appreciation uh, at the University of Wisconsin in Waukesha. I would teach Duke Ellington with a reminder to my students that Ellington studied to be a painter before he dove seriously into music. And that, in my opinion, he painted when he wrote and arranged music, he painted on a canvas of silence with colors of sound. Yeah because he was unique for his time in terms of uh, the colors that he got from his jazz orchestra. On ter- in terms of your music, now you work primarily in combos, smaller yeah. groups, but could you talk about your various approaches to the elements of music that you may take to create different colors and forms of musical expression in your music? Well, I like
1: uh, I like late 50s early to mid 60s jazz music I love Horace Silver mm-hmm. uh, I love Joe Henderson uh, Freddie Hubbard um, you know I love the John Coltrane quartet and so that's always it seems to always be, going in my car and in my house and all that stuff that came out of the blue note uh, catalog
0: (laughs) you know we are so similar in taste it's funny because i love that's my wheelhouse too oh man it's 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 incredible it's just
1: that's the stuff that really moves me so um i i i tend to when I sit down and write music with the intention of writing music, I tend to not get much done. I, I labor over it and I change it a lot and I think way too much about it. But um, my writing process is to um, have my phone, which I'm on right now and Mm -hmm. use the voice recorder and uh, sing some sort of melody or pattern or baseline whatever ideas come into my head and then I come home and I I write it down and um, a lot of my stuff seems to come from uh, is is influenced by that 60s jazz uh, you know these fourths voicings and uh But my t- but my taste shift and my process shifts um, it's changed over the years and certainly it's changed over this pandemic since I'm home quite a bit more um, but um, I think my my writing and my playing it's influenced by what I listen to mm-hmm. and, uh, that would be the 60s yeah the sure. miles quint miles quintet it's I mean It's incredible.
0: Well, I, you know, I I happen to agree. I I mean, what I'm saying is my tastes are very, I love that, you know, quote unquote, hard bop era from like 55 to 65, you know, that that really meat and potatoes kind of straight ahead jazz. And, uh, and, and I think that that uh, often impacts a lot of what I uh, like to do you know my uh i have an 8 piece that i i front and uh so i very often take uh i love to arrange joe henderson tunes oh cuz i just yeah. i just love his i love his stuff so you know i've oh. just done i just did a an arrangement of shade of jade and oh. uh and uh, uh let's see what what was the other one i had uh record me uh and then i've also done uh have a have one of the book of uh oh crimey the title's escaping me it's in three but anyway i'm right there with you i think that's that's great stuff like Jinrikisha,
1: Jinrikisha, or something
0: i uh, could be i can't
1: remember but any anyhow
0: uh you know i think that uh, Joe Henderson, I think, is a, g- a good example of a tenor player who could emit a lot of different colors from his instrument. And, and I'll give you the example of why I think that. And I, and I would be interested in hearing your response. I had the opportunity to hear Joe Henderson live in Milwaukee. Uh, let's see. It was probably not too long before he passed.
1: Yeah, and when he,
0: when he was touring he was touring with only a drummer and with a bass player, no pianist. And uh, it was probably right after he did that uh, album that had a lot of the uh, Ellington and Strayhorn pieces on it. I can't remember the name of it now. Yeah, with Winton. Um, but anyway, he, uh, just with nothing but bass and drums behind him, It was I was just so impressed with all of the different... Uh, sounds that he, you know, could get from his horn. And, uh, and I think, uh, you know, of course, we could talk for days about John Coltrane, and all the different sounds that he would get from uh, a tenor sax, let alone when he played soprano. Um, so I think your, your expression of that period of time, uh, and those players just being full of mountains of different color is uh is one that's uh not off base one bit
1: now i'm not a you know I've, i don't consider myself to be um a blazing saxophone technician you know it's uh there there are some cats out there who are just man it's i can't even believe what they're listening to mm-hmm. uh, what i'm listening to i can't believe what they're playing and uh but I love the compositions. And when you talked about Joe Henderson, those tunes are so heavy. And I, mm-hmm. I tend to listen to, I don't listen to sound bites on social media. I mm-hmm. like to listen to whole albums and the way that one song leads into another and the entire vibe of an album. And uh, all those albums of that era had, um, you painted that picture that you talk about with Duke Ellington. I mean, there was there was a concept for that album and with the compositions. And that's, that's what I respect the most and that's what draws me to, to that era. And there was a lot going on in the country, mm-hmm. uh, and in the African-American community and the civil rights movement and just all the, all the stuff that was going on that really influenced those musicians. And uh, Joe Henderson, I heard him a handful of times. I had a clinic with him. Um, and that was right about that time, that same time you're talking about, maybe it was the album with Schofield. Um, <laughs> but he was so quiet. He's so he's so deep. And I think he was a I, my opinion was that he was a genius but he didn't mm-hmm. talk he just said I want to play and someone asked him what do you think your uh, greatest or what's your favorite composition and why and he said well record a May mm-hmm. because it's because it's minor and then it's major <laughs> I mean <laughs> like what like what okay and, and then he said okay let's play
0: mm-hmm. So, well, you know, I remember now two things. One is that when he uh, played that concert in Milwaukee, I don't believe he spoke once right. during the entire set. They just played tunes. Just played. And, and he may have said a few words at the very end when he announced, you know, their last composition. But that was about it. Like I said, he was a person of did not speak. Oh, here we go. It was the 1992 album, Lush Life, the music of Billy Stranger. Oh. Oh, and I remember it was is, Isfahan when he played that. I loved that song and the way he did it with just tenor, bass, and, and uh, drums uh, that really turned me on. The other thing is I had to cheat. I had to go back and look at my... Printed out set list. But the other tune I was trying to think of was Black Narcissus. Oh, yeah. You know, that's ah, in three yeah. And, yeah. And, and just a wonderful tune. The other thing about Joe Henderson, about how I believe he thought a lot in colors, is the fact that he did do some big band albums really? and he arranged a lot of his combo charts. You know, so I mean, I think he had those, you're right, he was a genius. He had those colors in his, in his ears, in his head already, and just, uh, and just put them together for the, uh, for, for all, you know, the other musicians. So, Tom, I'm curious. Now, you've talked a little bit about your writing, but when you write an original piece, what is it that seems to come to you first? Is it a melodic idea? A rhythmic idea? Do you hear chord changes? Or do you have uh, just a particular mood, or a set of words, or lyrics that come to mind, and then you try to create something that fits that particular line of words, even though it's an instrumental piece?
1: It could be. It could be any of those things, really. And uh, okay. it seems like, seems like when I'm not trying, you know, I will. I'll get an idea, and if and if I'm really present, then I'll. Uh, I'll focus on it and then um, document it somehow, whether it's writing it down or doing it on my phone. It could be a bass line. It could be a chord progression. Mm -hmm. um, And it could be a melody. Okay. But um, it tends to be less. uh, I tend to write less on my horn and write more on the piano. Okay uh so the harmony uh, to me is very important Mm -hmm. and if i do write a melody on or hear a melody on my saxophone and write it down um it has to have have the harmony Uh, i have to go right down to the piano and um yeah so i have i have close to a hundred compositions
2: um Mm -hmm.
1: And uh, I can always tell which ones were were spontaneous and which ones I labored over because okay. uh, the, one, the ones that I that I labored over, I may not have been hearing as much, and I could tell that I really worked on it to make it turn mm-hmm. it into a song. Mm-hmm. Uh, so,
0: oh, that's 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 interesting. That you know, I I, I recall speaking of writing. Um, I was visiting the Smithsonian Institution. I happened to be in Washington, DC for a MENC conference. Yeah, it was, it was probably around 2000. And so I, uh, I went to the uh, whatever the building, the arts and culture building, because I had read somewhere where the Smithsonian was starting to put together a Duke Ellington uh, uh, display, whatever. And so anyway, I went in and I asked some of the docents, you know, where I could find this. And I got there and there was just this one little display box and it happened to be take the A train in manuscript in manuscript. What I felt thought was really interesting, because, you know, when you write hand manuscript, it's like handwriting. Everybody's manuscript is different, right? And you could look at that, you could look at that score, and you could sort of tell that definitely two different people had worked on that score, because Ellington's hand and Strayhorn's hand. And, And it was different. Well, then here's the other part that's funny, is I asked one of the docents, I says, this can't be it. I mean, there was, I swear, the box was no more than about six to maybe eight feet wide, and, and maybe four or five feet high. And I said, this can't possibly be all of Ellington's just she says well it's all we have put together the rest of it's still in storage because there's so much of it that we haven't been able to get through it all but anyway that's that's another story for another time but my my you know when you talk about uh uh writing and and you know in this case collaboration uh and everybody kind of putting in their different uh uh, spin on things. You're right that there. I th- when you say that, you could tell which tunes just kind of flowed effortless, effortlessly, or with less effort than those that you really had to labor over. And uh, you know, I think that's that's something that uh, that's not a qualitative statement about our music. It's just sometimes the way it is. It's like it's like doing math problems, right? Some are easy, some are hard, right? You know, yeah. but anyway. But typically, Tom, what motivates you to write? You know, for when I was doing stuff with Positone,
1: um, uh, I would have a recording session each year, and I would know about six months out when my date would be, and that would be motivation.
2: Okay, that,
1: where I would have a, a date when I needed all this music, and if we if we recorded eight tunes I would have to have 12 or 15 mm-hmm. um, and we would go through those and and um, Mark and Nick particularly Mark uh, over at Positone would have we would go through the stuff and and he would he would say well you know we how about a boogaloo it's a, we don't have anything like that you have you have a couple medium swingers and a ballad and an uptempo what about um, uh, mm-hmm. so then I would, I would, uh, you know, try to think of a boogaloo and, um, uh, uh, so that was motivation. And then after I started making my own records, the mo- I, I just wanted, I just had all these tunes and I wanted to record all these tunes. A Mm -hmm. lot of the tunes were, were disregarded were ones that were left off of those other albums. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to document them. And now I'm trying to, I have, uh, um, I was going to record, uh, this past fall. I have all these tunes that I wrote at the beginning of the pandemic way, way back spring of losing track of time, uh, 2020. Um, and, uh, and then i went i I went to set up a session, and I cancelled the session uh because I realized i didn't I wasn't feeling any of these tunes anymore mm-hmm. um, and now I'm thinking um uh, man, if I could like yourself if I could have an eight piece if I could have an octet, you know i love the the Joe lobano non stuff you know octet- uh, no more horns more you know a big band but how do you fund how do you a do big that? band yeah you know that's uh a... so right now i'm i'm kind of trying i'm i'm trying to figure out what i'm doing i'm always i have notebooks and i have folders on my computers with mm. audio and all sorts of notes documented um and I figure I'd, you know, like everything else, it'll it'll hit me. Mm-hmm. Figure out what I'm doing, and I'm teaching so much these days too that that's uh, um, that's that's kind of put put my projects in a holding pattern for the moment. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, you talk about an eight piece. I, uh, you know, mine came together. Oh, I can't remember how many years ago uh, because I discovered a. Uh, there was a group out of the uh, Twin Cities uh, that was the horn section for Prince. Oh, yeah. And as a side project, they had this band called Hornheads. And it was just horns, no rhythm section, two trumpets, tenor sax, barry sax, trombone, and the trombonist was the, the guy who wrote most of their arrangements. Wow. Well, so I, you know, I listened to some of this. So I wrote to this guy and asked him if any of the arrangements were available for, for purchase. And uh, Chris Nelson was his name. Because I thought, you know, I'd like to have these for my students to play at the university. So I bought, well, long story short, I ended up buying the whole book. And I got these tunes and they were too hard for my college students. <laughs> Way they couldn't play yeah. it. So in the file drawer they went. Well, as I got approaching my knowing that I was going to retire from full-time teaching, I had a, an epiphany one day. I said, you know, if I don't put some people together and play these charts, these are never, ever, ever going to get played. Yeah. So I got four of my friends together that we and we started play. <laughs> playing these Hornheads charts, and so of course the next thing says, "Jamie, great! If we you get a gig?" And yeah, well, okay, we did. I think we did play one gig as just the Hornheads band, or horns is what I called it. And then one of the guys says, "Yeah, but if we if we go out and play, you know, a two three hour gig, nobody's gonna want to sit and listen to a, a, a cappella horns for that long. <laughs> <laughs> we ought to really do some other arrangements." So I started digging around, trying to find arrangements that could be adapted for you know for the instrumentation I had plus rhythm section that's how my eight piece was born well subsequent to that I've uh I made good friends with a drummer composer arranger in New York named Dan Pugach I don't know if you know Dan but he has a he has a non-ad and He's a wonderful drummer, but we we happened to just <coughs> connect on Facebook, and ended up talking for an hour or two via Facebook Messenger while he was he was stuck on the subway somewhere. But uh, anyway, long, uh, he uh, he ended up sharing some of his band's charts. Now he has a non nonet, but we talked it through about how you know what could I cut or double elsewhere, you know, with, you know, that what you use that I don't. And so anyway, those charts are going to work. Well, subsequent to that, I also got, I started getting an interest in contacting like uh, composers and arrangers and big band leaders. And I happened to connect with Alan Ferber oh man yeah and and and,
1: i'm good friends with his brother
0: yeah 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 because i know he played drums he played drums with you in your in one of your videos but uh, but alan super super guy you know because he's an educator too and we when i interviewed him i don't i don't even remember how long we talked but it was a long time well anyway so i i told alan about my band and he's and i said i know you have a non-ed so i sent him uh, recordings of my group and he he went through and selected charts that he had written he thought they'd work good for my group and then told me you know well okay so i his instrumentation he would also have a bass trombone so you said well you could take the bass trombone out and it won't hurt the harmonic structure that much and you could, you know make it playable so i've had some excellent help from from people did you have a Barry sax then yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. The instrumentation is, is, uh, a Barry, my Barry sax player who then do he also doubles on, uh, uh, flute and, yeah. uh, and alto. And then, uh, I have a tenor player who doubles on soprano and then, uh, two trumpets and trombone. And of course, wow. both of us trumpet players, we double on flugels. And, uh, but, uh, but here's the thing that's kind of, uh, kinky is that i have found like arrangements written for brass quintet that i can write for those five horns right and uh you know so i found some nice tasty ballads that were written originally for brass quintet that i can adapt there but uh so you know that's what i've done and i didn't want to start another big band because there's already A number of good established big bands in the milwaukee area and i figured i still love ensemble playing yeah but i also love the spontaneity of a combo so i thought a small smaller a medium-sized group was the best way to go and that's how that came about
1: it's such a it's it's such a cool size band i mean i i know i mentioned the joe lomano Thing before yeah. it's a that that uh the Joe Lovano live stuff with that Nina with George Garzone playing tenor too and Joe Lovano it's just those guys are just burning mm-hmm. and they it's a small group it's like they're playing it's not it's it's not the Mel Lewis big band. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when Joe Lovano was playing in that there where they're, they're playing some charts, but they're really blowing. And um, yeah. So yeah. I was thinking about doing some of that, but I'm, I'm not really sure you're motivating me, though.
0: well again tom i have the luxury in that i don't have to rely on my music making to make a living you know being semi-retired so i i can pursue these dreams without having to worry too much about the practicality of it
1: yeah yeah.
0: because uh, a lot of times like the clubs we've played in (laughs) there's a club in in milwaukee great club uh but putting eight pieces on their stage was a challenge Sure. Sure. Because sure. because mostly it's called the Jazz Estate. And if you ever come to oh, Milwaukee, you want to play there because it's awesome sound. It's real small, but an awesome sound and uh, good people. And uh, it's really, really a nice club. But we I took my eight piece in there and it was crowded. <laughs> but we managed we managed. Hey, well, I want to shift gears. I really want to shift gears almost completely because um, you, you're also an educator and I'm an educator and we need to talk about music education. So my first question is uh, what do you tell your students who are aspiring toward a career in music? Uh, before the pandemic,
1: I would, I would tell them to go, just okay. go for it. That's mm-hmm. a, uh, Uh, But I would ask them a lot of questions for actually I should back up I should I would ask them a lot of questions what else do you like to do, and if they gave me a lot of different answers all these different things they like to do and all this stuff they were involved in I would say well you know, where is music in that. Um, It seems like the ones that I would tell go for it uh, say go for it to. Were the ones who, like me, weren't doing anything else, you know, Mm -hmm. just one track mind, all music, all the time. Now, during this pandemic, the students that I've had who've gone off to music be in, uh, go off to music school, um, I've encouraged to uh, pursue education degrees degrees in education something that is a little bit more stable and Mm -hmm. and i've really and i've told them to to play you know you can play but but get something that's a little bit more solid and um where you can go and you can you can teach in in the public school system or or at an independent school or at the collegiate level but something that is a little bit easier to work with because i mean this pandemic um gave me all my see all these gray hairs yeah here? Uh, <laughs> yeah so the uh yeah so
0: well if, if for that matter you see you see this all, almost all gray beard <laughs> and this gray i got that from being an educator but that's <laughs> right <laughs> that, well that part that part you know i love
1: um I love my high school students and my college students, but I love teaching the little kids.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, I, I love teaching the grade school kids and the early middle school kids um, because, uh, you know, maybe no one else is telling them about Duke Ellington. Maybe yeah. no one else is telling them about um, Thelonious Monk. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a telling them about the blues we're coming into black history month here Mm -hmm. so i'm 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 teaching a lot of fundamental african-american music you know Mm -hmm. it's here's where it's at and i love it when their eyes light up and and i make a connection between that stuff and the stuff they're listening to today Mm -hmm. and um so I really, I really like teaching, and um, you can just like with musicians, you can see it with your students when they, when they um, have. You can see it when they, when they're the type of person who who wants to educate, wants to be of service, wants to pass it along, where they're excited about talking about it, and. Um, Yeah, I'm not putting it together too well right now, but hopefully well, I'm getting that idea across.
0: I yeah. think I can. I, I've i had similar experiences, and I think, you know, when so, the light goes on for somebody.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, I had a student at the college where I taught and where I taught was a two year college freshman, sophomore campus. So. Uh, and Alex came into my door one day and I said, you sat him down. He was local kid. And I said, well, what is it that you, why do you want to major in music? What is it you want to do in music? And he said to me, he said, I want to be a blues guitarist. And I said, all right. Now, I said, being a professional musician in this day and age presents a lot of challenges. I said, but it's doable but you really gotta want it. And he says, well, I know I want it. Well, long story short, Alex Smith lives in Chicago because after he left me, he went to uh, Columbia College in Chicago. And he also hung out with the right kind of people, Buddy Guy and Smothers that he learned a lot from. And he ended up uh, playing with, uh, with a band that toured, did 250 shows a year and before COVID. And he was doing quite well. He's done a couple of recordings of his own. But what I'm getting at is here's a kid that walked in my office one day and, and said, I wanted to be a blues guitarist. And I was at first, of course, OK, immediately in the back of my head, what's the chances? You know, because we know that music's a very competitive field and and so forth. But he, you know, proved that he wanted it bad enough that he could get it. And I think that's what you're trying to say. You can see in that person if they want it bad enough. But the thing that, you know, uh, the thing that I did
1: not say is I'm also really, really motivated, almost more so by the kids who don't want it at all, especially Mm -hmm. in that that grade school and middle school where they had never thought about music at all. Mm-hmm. and then you and then you present something and and as you said the lights come on they're like whoa even if they're not going to become musicians yeah but they appreciate it and they hear it and they um they see the people in their community differently and they they hear the music in a different way it's i mean i was i was teaching a, a class these kids had never even listened to the bass in the music Right. And off they're all listening. They're listening to the high notes and they're listening yeah. to the what, what do you mean, the bass? What is that? And um, just that sort of thing the challenge as an educator to unlock minds. Bingo. Uh, and I, I really like that.
0: No, I, I'm right there with you. I, I, I could share a ton of experiences with you that I had because, uh, you, you know, at the university, I taught. A lot of uh, the non-music major courses, the courses that were the students took to get three credits of fine arts, right? And I cherished those experiences when I had a student that came to me and I recommended that they go to hear Milwaukee Florentine Opera. Ah, And they thought, what? I said, yeah, go try it. And his kid, this kid, came back and he said, yeah, I said, I got a guy. I went and I was so blown away by it. My girlfriend and I got tickets for the next one. Wow. Good. And I thought, yes, because, because this was a kid that had no background in classical music, family didn't have any background that I just, you know, you set him in that direction and you turn that light on for people. I'm so, you're so right. You can change our lives. Oh, man. But, you know, the other thing I'm really curious to hear you talk about, Tom, is uh, uh, because I've done this as well, but you have been working with students in the autism spectrum.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And
0: I am, of course, very interested in what you will say is because I have had students at the university who were also on the autism spectrum. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm interested in your experience. please talk about the unique challenges you are faced with in reaching these students and how you've adapted your teaching to these students.
1: Well I work for I worked as an outside piano teacher at the Princeton Child Development Institute. I've been there for about 15 years And New Jersey has a lot of support and a lot of funding for, Uh, special needs students. They really provide a lot of research. The state of New Jersey has a lot of resources and this school is is, um, an established school that takes data and publishes data um, and they receive a lot of funding from the state of New Jersey. And so each student has, it's a one-to-one teacher-student ratio. There's an Applied Behavioral Analyst, an ABA that works with each student. So when the student comes to me, they come to me with the teacher um, and I'm not an ABA, but over the years um, with working with them over there, um, we're able to uh, use, I've, I've learned quite a bit about using behavioral um, or motivational systems and um, certain techniques that motivate the students, um, regardless of what level, you know, whether they're highly functioning or nonverbal. Um, so my teaching is not necessarily the same as when I'm teaching a typical student. But it's given me a better understanding and more patience uh, as an educator with, Typical students, but in that situation, it's a lot slower. There are a lot of motivations. Um, You have to listen quite a bit to what they're saying and what they're doing. Um, There's a lot of repetition. And when I say that you have to listen quite a bit, you know, it's... um, I would come into a typical lesson a lesson with a typical student with a lesson plan Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: we're going forward no matter what. But in those Mm -hmm. situations, I have to really listen to what the student is doing and what the student is saying and how they're responding um, and adapt to that. Um, And some of the reinforcements that we give the students are very quick reinforcements to shape their behavior. Others are more delayed reinforcements, depending upon um, where they where they're at on the spectrum. I've learned a lot about myself uh, teaching for over there. Uh, I used to get very frustrated. You know, why aren't they doing? <laughs> where are they doing what? What I want them to do, and uh, I made it all about me. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the joy that I see on their their faces when they uh, when I'm teaching to them, teaching to uh, the you know it's it, it gives me a lot of joy when I see that um, they're able to play and and slightly distracted right now by something that's going on over here, but, um, the, uh, it's, yeah. Okay. It's, it's a great job. It's, it's taught me a lot.
0: Sure. Sure. Well, I think, uh, you know, that when you, you're absolutely right. I think when you say that you have to adapt to the students, I mean, that's who we're teaching after all. I mean, it's not like we're, uh, you know, uh, expecting them to come to us. We have to come to them. Right. Yeah. I'm going to shift gears again. Uh, it's a different kind of education. You're also a broadcaster with a radio show. Uh, what is your personal goal of broadcasting jazz to the world? Yeah. And I'm, I have to say with uh, WWFM, I've,
1: um, I come in and out of that show right now. I'm, I'm playing uh reruns for just a lack of time but mm-hmm. my motivation with that is to is to play music that i love to listen to mm-hmm. um it it costs a lot of money to um uh advertise your music and to get it out there and to be grammy nominated and to you know it's uh to have a a promo person who's pushing it out there and do all that stuff. There are a lot of people who are just making music. And uh, my motivation is to play music that I like to listen to, uh, people that I know, um, and to try to help them out, give some exposure to those people. Um, Mm -hmm. The modern jazz radio show is newer music. I tend to not play that 70s or 60s uh it'll be rare if i play something from the eight the 1980s um it's mostly newer stuff like the crisscross records they don't they're not advertising at all hardly mm-hmm. those the, they just put them out
2: mm-hmm.
1: um mm-hmm. we're putting they're putting them out um so i love that stuff mm-hmm. uh, and that's a labor of love but it takes a lot of time like the show like the time you're taking with me right now I mean it's a lot of time that's and um, so right now I'm playing reruns and I'll get back into it uh, when it slows down a little bit over here
0: okay all yeah. right well I it's, love doing it, it though. Uh, you know, I mean, it sort of sounds like, uh, you know, similar goals that you have with your broadcasting that I do with my podcasting. Uh, I'm not interested in making any money and I don't, but what I have an interest in is meeting people and helping promote their music. And uh, of course I don't, uh, you know, I told somebody this once that says I don't make any headway by interviewing Taylor Swift, you know, like I could. Right. But what I want to do is people who are, who are, you know, new to me and then help kind of pass that along to others. And that's really a lot of what I like to do. Sounds like you're kind of in a similar boat. I'd like to kind of come back uh, to circle back if we could to your, your music, your latest release, if I'm, unless I am mistaken, was your album message, Mm -hmm. which you released about a year ago. Yeah. So uh, talk a little bit, uh, if you would, about that album, if you could. And then tell my audience about any recording projects you have planned or in the works. Sure. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Message was uh, it's self self self-released. And it's a quintet with guitar, piano, tenor, bass, drums. Uh, A combination of New York and Philly guys Uh, was recorded in North Jersey at uh, Tedesco Studios and um, it's all original compositions and um, it's a fun, fun band. We played quite a bit leading up to um, that session up to that date played a little bit afterwards and then right away, things got shut down. And Mm -hmm. my next record was going to be with that same exact band. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, And then, um, you know, as I spoke of earlier, I started thinking about other music, but uh, I love, I love Mike Kennedy's guitar playing. I love his guitar sound. I love a little bit of distortion on the guitar. Um he's not playing a jazz box. I'm not even sure what he was playing on. Uh, uh and and the piano player Neil Pogerski, he's such a bebopper.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I like how he he throws that into the mix. Um, um I uh re- I recorded that in the studio, and then it, I I mixed it and did sort of a faux mastering of it. And uh, when when everything shut down, I was working on the mixing, and I don't have speakers, mm-hmm. so I did it the wrong way. I mixed it in headphones,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and what I would do is I would I would mix it, I would bounce it, and then I'd go walking around my town here listening to it
2: Mm -hmm. would
1: reference it on my earbuds and then i would get in my car and reference it in my car and i don't know how many how many references i don't know how many times i bounced it but that was like my early pandemic um project was was mixing that album down i mixed the previous album my album 10 as well and there are some things i like about that and some things i don't but um that was a whole thing in itself that I sort of got into was how to mix it. I realized at one point I'm mixing up. You don't want to mix up, you want to mix down. I was like, man, this is loud. Why is it so loud? I'm mixing everything up. Yeah. And uh, you know, just the basic fundamentals, day one mixing 101. Um trying to learn about. So I like that album. It's uh you know, every single album that I've made has a personals. It's like a personal milestone for me. Um, I didn't promote it that much. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't put it on streaming. Right. You know, and uh, I got off of streaming and just did band camp and a few other things. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: yeah, so yeah, I think Bandcamp was how I found out about it. Yeah, Bandcamp's cool, man. Yeah, a... yeah, yeah. I love it. But uh, yeah, well that's great. Well, and, and and you do have some other kind of things in mind. So we'll look for more from you here in the future.
1: Yeah, thank you. That's, that's it's awesome. awesome. And uh, somebody told me years ago when you're when you're trying to figure out what to do, keep playing music. And you don't have to play your instrument, play other instruments too. So I'm playing a lot of piano, playing a lot of guitar, playing saxophone, playing uh, clarinet, trumpet, a little bit of trumpet okay. and uh, all those things. Um, yeah, just get the, keep the creative juices flowing. Flowing, right.
0: Yep, just keep putting one foot in front of the other and keep, keep moving some way or another. I think that's great advice. But uh, Tom, you know, we've had a great conversation now for, uh, well, a little bit over an hour. Uh, it has been great talking to you. So fun, man. Uh, Is there anything else you would like to add or tell my audience that I have not asked you about?
1: No, I don't think so. I just, I'm just really grateful to be here. You know, I'm really All grateful right. that you asked me. It came out of, came out of the blue and I, I don't think we knew each other and, you know, to just get a cold call like that. It's uh it means the world to me. Well, so that good. somebody was listening and.
0: Well, it yeah. meant a lot to me that you responded in a positive manner and we're excited about, about, you know, doing it. And uh, because I sure enjoy having the opportunity to talk with people like yourself and have enjoyed our conversation that we've had today. And Tom, I want to thank you, uh, you know, for taking time and sitting out there in your cold car or maybe you have the (laughs) heater on i don't know but but i don't but you know maybe maybe it's a good thing you know the number of composers i've talked to and songwriters i've talked to that said they get inspiration while they're in the car yeah maybe you'll have some while we're there but i i certainly want to wish you all the best uh for what i'm sure is going to be a continued uh, successful musical future I
1: hope so. God willing, you know. All right.
0: Well, you take care. Thank you,
1: Kurt. Be Be well.
0: Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. My discovery composer of the week is French composer and conductor Guy Ropard. Born in 1864, died in 1955. Ropard was born into a family keenly interested in the arts. After attending the Jesuit College in Venn, where he played various instruments in the school orchestra, he studied law, partly to be able to take care of his mother and partly out of respect for his father's memory. After graduating in 1885, he moved to Paris, where he enrolled at the Conservatoire and studied with Dubois and Massenet. In 1887, he began to take lessons with Franck. During his years in Paris up to 1892, he was also actively engaged in literature and poetry. In 1894, he was made director of the conservatory in Nancy, which achieved an unprecedented impact on the musical life of the city above all through the concerts Ropar regularly conducted. His success there led to his appointment as head of the Strasbourg Conservatoire in 1919. He retired in 1929 to his native Brittany, where he continued to compose until 1950. He was highly regarded by such peers as Dukas, Schmidt, and Honiger. Faure praised his taste and craftsmanship. If Ruppert was not a champion of modernism, he was equally an enemy of academicism, rejecting the idea that a creative artist could work according to a preconceived aesthetic dogma. Though he came under the influence of Franck and the French musicians such as Dupart. Early in his life, he was later able to forge a strong personal style. His harmony evolved from post-Wagnerian chromaticism towards a rich tonal and modal language in which the use of added sixths or the juxtaposition of triads is fundamental to his mature style. He always sought renewal within traditional structures. He was fond of the use of generative cells, of partial development of different ideas that ultimately reunite, and of modulations up or down a third. Ropar's love of Brittany is expressed not so much through the routine exploitation of folk music, but rather by means of an atmospheric evocation of a place, as in his opera La País. By working with modal scales and colors, especially sensitive and successful in his chamber music, and by using unequal rhythms, displaced accents, and polyrhythm. The All Music Guide lists 22 recordings of Ropar's chamber music, 17 of his choral works, 3 of his concerti, 38 of his keyboard compositions, 1 recording of his single opera, 6 recordings of his symphonies, 10 of his other orchestral works, and 3 recordings of his work for Voice with Accompaniment. In my show notes is a link to a YouTube performance of Ropar's Andante et Allegro for Trumpet and Piano with Phil Smith as Trumpet Soloist. That wraps episode number 74. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I'll be interviewing the award-winning jazz trumpet player and educator, Josh Lawrence. Other upcoming interviews include jazz trumpet player and director of operations at the jazz record label Outside in Music, Alan Blanchard, Fort Worth, Texas-based 14-year-old singer-songwriter phenom Jack Barksdale, and indie rock singer-songwriter Ivy Ryan. So don't touch that dial. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So, until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog, signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.